Welcome to Airship Travelogues, episode number six. I'm Noah, and my co-pilot here, of course, is Mark. I have nothing clever to say, I'm sorry. And we are very honored to have an IGN reunion type of sorts here with our fellow co-hosts. We have Doug from Hi. a few episodes back, and Craig from, I think, just... Last episode. Like the, should, should I, since we're on an airship, should I be making like nice little propeller sounds? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sing the music, yeah. the Final Fantasy music. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't want me to do that. That Red Wings theme is what's in my head whenever I think airships. But uh, then also, very excited to have the original founder of Nintendo Joe, Air Schneider. Last and least, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape pair. What does that mean? No, I'm the small. The last and least. I'm tiny. Oh. No, definitely so not last and least. This is so awesome to have you on the show. I can't remember. I I think the last time we had, we've had a couple interviews with you via text and email over the years, but it's really great to have you here, here. And as well, it's also great, very cool to have Craig and Doug back on the show again. Thank you guys very much for all coming. No worries. <laughs> Doug is having his ass kissed. <laughs> all great, all right. Doug, is this our first podcast ever together? It is. When we were doing the internet, everything was still printed with ink. We didn't really have recording devices. We were writing on the monitors back in the day. That's right. Yeah, yeah with Mark. <laughs> That's right. We were using ink on the internet. Here, very good. Yeah, we, we didn't do any. We were doing podcasts for a while, and then when I left, it was like. The explosion of social media, pretty much right after. Doug, you left in 2005, 2006? Seven. Seven. Okay, sorry. And Craig, you left uh, last year, last right? Last year, yep. And, and Pear is still the overlord there, so. Yeah. Interesting mix. He's hanging on. That's right. Iron grip. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so for this episode, with the Nintendo 64 anniversary happening 15 years ago we decided to theme this episode kind of around that to talk to everybody about their nintendo 64 launch day stories and memories and also since we have all this these ign power players here we'll have some ign side stories as well mark has put together a series of questions an interrogation and inquisition of sorts <laughs> for our co-hosts that we will barrel through here. And if you have any comments or feedback on the show, listeners, please send it in to airship at nintendojo.com. We always love to get those. And feel free to leave a review for us on iTunes if you like. But, Mark, go forth with our questions. Yes, sir. Doug, you were working at NextGen, or was it um, just called Imagine? Um... God, what you was the publisher? Next Generation Magazine. Okay, yeah. that's where. So when the N64 came out, you're already covering it, reviewing, and all that good stuff, right? Yeah. Are you asking me a question? Yeah. Is that how you were first? <laughs> you first got your system for review, uh, right? Okay. I see. I see where you're going. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I was working at NextGen uh, as the managing editor. I was working with Neil West and Trent Ward um, and Chris Charla, um, and it, it was uh, it was really fun. I was covering the arcade beat, and I was at a wedding. A guy named Eugene Wang, uh, who was our our artist, one of our artists on the magazine, was getting married, and we were hanging out afterward. And Chris Charles said, uh, hey, have you been talking to anyone recently about some new stuff? And I was like, 
what are you talking about, Chris? And he was like, well, I think we're going to start an internet site. And I was like, <laughs> I was like but we have one, right? It's a online. He's like, no, it's going to be much bigger. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds cool. So when I realized that Chris was basically saying he was going to be the editor-in-chief, this is Chris Charla, right? He was going to be the editor-in-chief of, of uh, IGN.com. I I realized that uh, I was instantly very ha- unhappy at Next Generation and and uh, pretty much got myself scooted over to IGN. The, the only interesting story there is that uh, I originally signed up for the Sega Saturn site and because uh, I was I had one and I was playing it and I really liked it and I realized I talked to somebody and they're like why, why didn't you pick the N64 side and I'm like hey yeah that's a good idea so I switched over and Jeff Chen who had been hired to run the N64 site had just switched over to the Sega site he's like okay I'm here I guess I'll do it so I started in like uh, whatever like June of 1996 we launched n64.com on launch day. And um, then we launched the Sega Saturn and PSX Power sites uh, that fall. That's where Craig came in, right, Craig? You were doing Saturn first? I came in as the, the first round of hires after they kind of established the, the website itself. So, like, uh, Doug had already, you know, he's running NC for a while. Jeff Chan was doing Saturn World. I was actually reading uh, Next Generation Online, and that's where I saw that they had a calling for, for editors. And so I sent in my resume. I was doing freelance at the time. I was in New York. Uh, trying to set up my own or, or starting a, a, a website of its own. Um, and what happened was, you know, so I, I sent in my resume, and apparently, like, right away, Chris Charles sent me, like, hey, I like your resume. Uh, hang on, hang tight. Just make sure, you know, like, we'll be calling. And so this was, you know, like, two weeks later, I was in New York, and Chris had called. And the only reason why he called back again is because my dad picked up the phone when he called up. And, uh, and, you know, it, my dad is very, you know, loud and boisterous and, you know, he's got a really outgoing personality. And apparently Chris liked that so much that that's why I kind of was on the front of the roller decks. So, um, when I, you know, when, when I was interviewing for the, for the job, Chris asked me what my, what my favorite system was. And I, at the time was playing, um, Knights and and, pa- and Panzer Dragoon on the Saturn. So I said, yeah, I'm playing the Saturn more than I am, but but I, I like the N64. But if I said I was working on, if I if I preferred the N64, he might have actually put me with Doug on, on the Nintendo 64 site. Oh, no. I know. That would have been interesting, <laughs> wouldn't it? So I yeah. came, yeah, I came in, it, it was April of 97. April of 97, I came in and, and started. It was April 1st, um, the, my first day of work. I thought, the funniest, I, think, thing, I thought the funniest thing about you getting hired uh, was that, uh, Chris had never actually met you in person. Everyone nope. else would come in. He just interviewed Craig on the phone and was like, yep, that's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it was. So I got hired because he liked my dad, and I never actually came in. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I actually uh, packed up my, my bags and put in my car and drove out because I was living in South Jersey at the time. So I you know, spent four days driving out to uh, you know, uh, San Francisco, and it's that was sad. my first day. You drove over in your Saturn, right? No, no, I bought the Saturn afterwards because uh, that car died three months after I came out to, to San Francisco. So I had to buy a new car when I, when I first came out. Hmm, good omen. Yeah. And, Pierre, you got started by doing, of course, Nintendo Show, right? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I went uh, – let me think about it. I came, to, I came to the U.S. basically to go to UC Berkeley, and, um, you know, I was at the, the journalism school there. 
and basically just started messing around with the web at the time, you know, coding HTML, editing some video, and just wanted to do, do something online that would let, let me kind of practice. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of an excuse. I also wanted to uh, write about video games because it was fun. And uh, so I just started a, a website, and it was actually um, – it was on AOL at the time. I had some uh, – remember America Online? Remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> I had an AOL account and just put it at, I think – the URLs were like members.aol.com slash whatever tilde 49, you know. <laughs> so it was just that. And I, I think I registered Nindojo or something because I couldn't get Nintendojo. I have no idea. Not like, not that anybody else had it. Just kind of messed around with the website and, um, you know, it was fun. And then I eventually registered a domain and redirected it. Um, yeah, and kind of was uh, was doing some of the stuff that, that Doug and Craig and the teams weren't doing, namely looking at a lot of Japanese gaming news, translating articles from uh, magazine magazines over there, just kind of covering the import scene a little bit more, and then also using Photoshop and, and Illustrator to create graphics and kind of lay out my features. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing a news site per se. It was like, and I wrote like one big feature every couple of days and put that up, but put a lot of graphics around it. And I think uh, you know, a lot of people liked it at the time. Um, it, was that, it was that one editorial that we noticed. <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with Nintendo? Yeah, what a, what a pain in no, the butt. What's wrong with Next Generation? Yeah. Oh, is that what it was? Next Generation? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, 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 Next Generation put a magazine out, which is called What's Wrong with Nintendo? And uh, and then it was the exploration of, you know, where was the third-party software and is the hardware going to work, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah. you know, I, I think Pear was pretty spot on, too, because their reviews were like 100 words long. So... They'd be all these reviews in there. They're really short, and Pear, you know, was you know, admittedly an, an Nintendo fanboy, right? I mean, oh, you know. and he's like, "What's wrong with What's wrong with Mario sixty four? Like, what's wrong with Turok? Why are these guys giving him such a hard time?" And I actually agreed. There was a pretty big schism even then at um at Imagine between you know people who liked the PlayStation in Saturn and and then Nintendo. Yeah. And, and the 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 magazine was pretty clever. They had a you know they had a cover with Mario, and it was like cracked as if the glass had broken uh, on yeah. the cover of the mag. And it said, "Yeah, something's wrong with uh, N64, and or something's wrong with Nintendo." And some of the points in the article were actually really good. You know, they were calling out kind of how Nintendo had failed to court third parties, and there really wasn't a lot beyond the first wave. But then they also kind of just fire it in all directions, and they you know they they faulting every every developer for everything and i just thought that at the time you know the nintendo games were actually really inspired compared to some of the software that we saw on playstation and so i kind of wrote that and then um you know i heard back from some of the guys at, at next generation you know chris charlie actually wrote me and said hey you that was pretty good <laughs> you know um and then uh i saw you know after i was like two years in, in grad school i saw a press release, um, and Doug, I used to be a total pain in your ass, too. I used to email you guys all the time. Like, if you guys were writing an article about, like, Turok, and you're like, and, you know, the game the game had this and this dinosaur, I'd be writing in going, like, actually, that dinosaur was taken out. It was only the previous. <laughs> you know, like, the typical stuff that we bitch about now that, that our, our readers do, like, people have a lot of time to, to look up stuff, um, I did to you guys. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, well. I don't uh, remember one of those emails. All right, good. I'm but I was just one one voice in the crowd. And then um, you guys put out a press release, and it said, like, Doug Perry got promoted to EIC, IGN.com or something. 
And so I just wrote in, or editorial director, I don't know what it was. And I, so I wrote in and said, okay, who's doing Doug's old job? And then Chris Charles said, you do, come on in. And I interviewed <laughs> and I uh, got the job that day. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, me and Julian interviewed him. That was yep. pretty fun. We were like, we better get this guy before he goes over to GameSpot. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, ironically, I was interviewing at both publications at the time. And I remember, you know, talking to the folks over there. Um, uh, it was Vince Brody at the time, I think. Yeah, Vince. Yep. He's like, ah, I can't hire anybody right now. I'll just hang tight for a couple months. And I was like, you know, I can't wait right now. Got to eat. So I took the job at IGN. Little did I know. So that was your determining factor? You're like, well, <laughs> I like GameSpot better, but I got to eat. Well, they were actually <laughs> they were called VideoGames.com back then, remember? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. That was it. It came down to that basically. <laughs> hey, good decision. Yeah, <laughs> worked out well for you. Worked in the short run, worked in the long run. Yeah, and that was in '97, uh, so summer '97. Yeah. Wow. I don't think that's a story that's often repeated today, with as prolific as websites are and as many angry voices as there are <laughs> and editorials flying around and forthrightness. Yeah, so, yeah. There was only, there was only like, as I remember, there was like Nintendo Joe, there was Nintendo HQ. There was our site in 64.com and maybe one or two other sites that I remember at most covering, you know, just Nintendo. Yep. Yeah. So it was a, it was a small crowd. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 64 HQ, there was a, Cap Scott site, right? Cap Scott. <laughs> I, remember that. I remember that. But also, GameFan Online was pretty big at the time. Back then, that was you know, they were kind of our big competitor. Yep. Yeah, they would put up they would put up a lot of a lot of good codes that reveal things. I remember them revealing like the tank mode or some little. Remember in Star Fox sixty four, if you open something up, you could play as the little teeny characters, little characters. Do you remember that? I forget what it was. Or you could run around on foot. I forget what it was. They they like broke the code. I was like, oh, those guys are awesome. I hate them. <laughs> so going back to those days in your careers, what if, what do you what are you nostalgic about when you think for for back then in terms of your work or your environment or or even just in terms of video games in general, Doug's the games that were coming out the hardware. What'd you say? I said, Doug's your mom jokes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Apparently, they had a big effect on you guys. Um, yes. Why don't you go first, Per? Uh, what am I nostalgic about? Well, first of all, it was, this is a day when PR companies didn't yet, they didn't know how to work with the internet yet. And, you know, it was kind of cool calling, cold calling companies and basically having to prove yourself and, and tell them who you were and what your publication was. And, you know, at the time, magazines really ruled. Like, we had PR people who just wouldn't get back to us when we reached out. Um, and then the other thing was you could call up every freaking game developer and they'd just tell you stuff, you know? You could call, <laughs> yeah, you could call up David Dean Spear who did Turok. You'd be like, oh, yeah, dude, already working on Turok 2. So you go on the website, you're like, already working on Turok 2. And, um that doesn't work today anymore. You know, you have to go through to through uh through the PR Chains. folks nowadays. Everybody is so terribly guarded. It's this freaking science of when content and, and details are revealed and you know, in a way we, we helped establish that whole kind of concept of 
announcement, first look, preview, hands-on preview, review, like that whole devil cycle. And um, it, it just didn't exist back then. It was great. Yeah, I remember I remember going to like an EA events or getting their press releases and uh, looking down at the press releases and then it and then in the fine code, like in the bottom, they would have they would things like, Oh yeah, this new game, you know, FIFA, you know, whatever, FIFA seven or FIFA eight, and we'd be like, Hey, they haven't announced that. So we would just like read the press press releases really well and call them and they would be like, Yeah, that's true, and then we write a story on it. Right. So we, we were just doing basic journalism, following up on things and paying attention to details. And we kind of we kind of worked on pretty hard for several years. Of course, they also, you know, we since we didn't have good, we try really hard to work with the system. But the, like Pear said, you know, all the PR companies and all the publishers were all oriented to magazines. The magazines would get, you know, 95 percent of the ads or 90 percent of the ads and. They were like, ah, we're not even going to invite, we're not even going to invite the online guys, you know. They'll yep. just, they'll just get it whatever they, they can. So we were like, well, you know what? F them. Let's go break every story we can. Let's get every tidbit of news the magazines can get. Let's, let's, you know, dig really deep. And uh, it, it worked. You know, it wasn't always fun, um, but I remember feeling pretty satisfied about, you know, just, you know, kind of. Being a, a decent journalist and and finding success with it, I think on a on a slightly different note, when we had on n64.com, we had reached ten thousand impressions. It was like a big deal. And Chris Charles said, "Well, you know, <laughs> Wired Magazine said if a website reaches ten thousand impressions or views, I forget what it was, it's a success." So we had reached you know ten thousand and by like three months, and we were like, "Wow, Wired Magazine said this was a success. That's awesome." Yeah. Like ten thousand is like you know the minimum amount you want on your like articles these days. Well, I, I'm if if you ask me what I'm most nostalgic about, I, my what, what I what I like to look back at is the fact that it was this new frontier, right? I mean, you're on the internet and you have to come up with all this tech, and it's like we take for granted like you know WordPress and and you know fa- Facebook and just video chat, and we're using Skype to do a, a podcast. We didn't have that stuff back then. And we had our make our own content management system. You know, like if we put up a video, it, w- it was at 160 by 120 running at 15 frames a second. It was like – but that was all we could, you know, really do. Um, but it was still kind of like – it was still cool that we did that kind of stuff. Um, but nowadays, it's like, oh, we're throwing up a video. It's kind of like you have a video team doing that kind of stuff now. It's like – but we were doing that. The editors that would, you know, that would write were putting up all this stuff, to, you know, ourselves. And, um, you know, we were kind of the jack of all trades. When, when when it came to like putting stuff up on the internet, yeah, we didn't. We we made our own top images, you know, the cover story images. Uh, we wrote, we copy edited, we recorded our videos, we narrated our videos. We did the HTML for our strategy guides. Remember, all that stuff was like, oh flat yeah, HTML oh my god. And, um, we entered yeah. our sheets. God. Wait, you said copy edited? We never did that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> some some of us did. Some of us. <laughs> And you know what was cool too, um, Doug? If you remember, um, we we kind of created this this horrible curse of of how to cover E3. I remember that in the magazine world, you know, they went to E3, they took it easy, they met with a couple of companies, played all the games, they went home, slept a little bit, had some dinner, and then <laughs> next week they write up some stories. 
And so we went to E3 and like, I, I remember Imagine Media actually had a booth that had a crashed airplane in it. Remember that? Yep. And it was like, it was like a war tent and actually on the back of the airplane, this was Chris Anderson, the, the head of Imagine Media. It actually said ZD, like the code for Ziff Davis, the big competitor, you know, now videogames.com, GameSpot and so forth was back then ZD. And the whole approach was, you know, E3 is like war. We're just going to rush in and we're going to get every bit of morsel and we're going to put it up really fast. And I remember that year, our entire competition was taken unawares. We just kind of published content really fast. And they didn't. And then the next year, it was all different, and everybody did okay, it. Okay, but to hear it fair, let me let me interrupt you just for a second, because our first year at, at E3, you know, obviously since you know we were brand new in the web and stuff like that, we couldn't afford to send everyone no. to. It was in Atlanta, right? So, yeah. so like all the key oh, players, yeah. you know, Doug went. Uh, uh, well, actually, you weren't part of this yet. The first E3, you weren't there oh, at second. IGN yet. Yeah, you were the second time. But no, uh, I remember Doug went, and then Jeff Chen went, and Chase um, Montez went, and all these, all the uh, key players went, and, but left the guys that were hired as secondary back at the office. And the only way we could publish these stories is <laughs> if Doug would send back an email that we would actually have to take that email, cut and paste out of the email, put it into our content management system, and, and, up, and update it. It was the most like, tedious and horrible way of doing E3, at least – from our end, on, you know, on Doug's end, he's they just are. writing stories. You're just writing stories out, out in Atlanta. But we're actually trying to take that content and then uploading the screenshots. To, oh, well, actually, it was probably terrible for you for uploading those screenshots, right? Well, all, all I remember is I'm not stamping them. <laughs> I'm not stamping them. That is an in-joke, but that was like two years later. <laughs> Craig, Craig. Had to stamp. We, all the guys who stayed home also had to put the IGN logo on the images. And so, like, the guys at home, they just – it sucked for them. They didn't get to go to E3. Yeah. They get to read all these stories. They get to post them. They get to put the images up. And before they put the images up, they had to manually stamp all the images, like the IGN images on them. And Craig was just like, I'm not stamping them. I'm not stamping them. And then for, like, <laughs> 10 years, that was like he never had to end of it. We still use that, by the way. We still – once in a while, you'll hear that in the office. I'm not stamping them. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> Craig Harris legacy. But I just remember uh, the, the one of the things that happened during E3 was uh, well, the fact we never we never left the office during E3. So those three days, I slept underneath my desk, and I would wake up to the sound of my Eudora mail, like getting an email, you know, my inbox, and that means oh, E3 started, okay. Okay. Um, but by day three, and this goes to what Pear was talking about, just getting all these stories up. Um, by day three, Doug was sending back nothing but like newbie joystick. Uh, stories and clearly he was he spent like all day at like at, at the newbie booth just learning everything about all their peripherals and just writing stories about newbie it was day three was just nothing but newbie from doug perry yeah that was really fun for me yeah. <laughs> that was like in the sh sorry the the bad hall it was like two big halls west and south and then there was like this other little hall kinsha if you had to go to Kensha, you were totally covering some horrible product. <laughs> what was it? What was it? Kensha afford a better hall? Oh. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me. Uh, one of the funniest things I remember, I, I didn't even really think about it until after because I was so brain dead. But I was at E3. The We were at E3 the year that um, uh, Star Wars Episode One came out. And um, we had this poster of Jar Jar Binks. And, you know, everyone felt like Jar Jar was the worst thing ever. 
So Matt put a little quote, taped a little quote onto his mouth, and it was outside of our war room. So you go down this hallway, you'd see this, you know, standee, and it was Jar Jar Bex with his tongue out, and it said, I ruined Star Wars. <laughs> and, then, and then you go into our war room, and we were all like, ah, shut up, leave me alone, try to write my story. But that was yeah, like that was, a, that was 99, right? I, I think so, yeah. Yeah. It was good times. Yep. I would say the thing that I remembered, the thing that I really remembered about the work environment was that we were all super dedicated and we, you know, we may or may not have liked each other all that much sometimes, but we, we, we went to lunch together every day. We worked until, at, you know, whatever the job was done, you know, we would slept at the office a lot. We, we, we bonded really well and, and we became good, you know, comrades, I would say, and, and better friends over the years because we spent so much time at this thing and it was great to see that it succeeded so well. So I would say, you know, I left in 2007 and I would say for me that camaraderie lasted from 96 to say like 94 or five. And when Steve Butts finally left and went back East, for me, that was kind of like the last piece of all the old guys, uh, you know, who had started kind of hanging out and spending time together. So I really missed the camaraderie because I'll tell you, even though it was bad at times, we were really awful to each other. I mean, we had fun, <laughs> but we were terrible. We were mean and awful. And Pear was just as worse as anybody. Oh, <laughs> um, well, Doug, Doug, Doug hung uh, underwear over my desk. <laughs> oh, you yeah, know what? That. I don't think that was Doug ever, was it? You always yeah. thought it was Doug. No, no, no. I, I thought no. I got I got it out of out of Manabite that it was Doug because I blamed Manabite Manabite for doing that. It was dirty underwear yeah. and it wouldn't go away. <laughs> I didn't do it. Someone else did it. Clearly. Uh, yeah, whatever. It was Jason Bourne. <laughs> it was Jason Bourne, now head of PR at Konami. So there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that still strikes me as uh, unbelievable, uncanny. That was fun. We had a, you know, I mean, when I left, went to go to different jobs, and I was like, hey, let's do this or that. People were like, what are you talking about? I mean, let's let's play music and let's drill around, let's go to lunch together. I'd be like, ah, I don't want to do that. I'm like, you know, Aijin spoiled you because it was like a big, it was like this big, I don't want to say fraternity, but it was like a geek fraternity for gamers, and and it was unlike any other job. And the, there were, you know. If anyone from HR had really wanted to nail us, we would all have been fired. I swear <laughs> to God. We all would have been fired. I mean, I remember doing awful things. Like, we had a mannequin. We put it on its knees and had another mannequin, you know, boofing it from the back. And we had, like, one of our CEOs come to it. We were, like, explaining it to him. We were laughing, having a great time. And he's just like, uh-huh, cool. Yeah, this is a great culture. I love this. You know? There were a lot of... There were a lot of pranks, you know, people setting each other's um, browsers to very bad startup pages when they didn't lock <laughs> their computers. I remember, like, Randy Nelson would come in and oh my God. browser, and it would be defecation vacation. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's favorite site, by the way. Yep, exactly. He actually, and, he actually put a, he, uh, got a uh, subscription to that, too, as far as I remember. Oh, Jesus. By the way, this, was not a, this was not a good site to go to. Think about it. Defecation vacation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's, let's not go there. <laughs> I don't know if it exists anymore. <laughs> the other one that I liked was uh, Mark Nix uh, was sort of always in the background, and he was uh, kind of a sneaky bastard. 
one time, and, and so, you know, we would get boxes of things, and we wouldn't always throw them out, and Fran was the worst. Now, I'm not saying anything about Fran behind his back that isn't true. Fran was absolutely the worst with garbage. He never threw out anything. If he had still the same. 240 FedEx packages, they'd all be sitting around his desk. All the, I mean, no recycling, nothing. So one day, Mark Nix, I think it was him and Corey one night, they took all those packages and built a small fort around his desk. With, <laughs> and, it's, and then, of course, the sign said, like with like kids writing Fran's, it's like a P-H-O-R-T. And then there was another Fort, one that said, Fort no Fran. girls allowed. Yeah. yeah, Fort Fran, no girls allowed. And it was like <laughs> this whole house filled of just the garbage that was around his desk. <laughs> and it was the coolest thing ever. And, and, and Fran left it. He left it there for like five months. But he would complain about it every day. Yeah, he wouldn't do anything about it. <laughs> well, the door was the door was sticky. <laughs> <laughs> On the inside or the outside? <laughs> Both. <laughs> that was so one of my back to, to the console, the Nintendo sixty four. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Since only because I mentioned it in the introduction, we have to come back to that. So. Do, you, do any of you have any particular launch day stories that you have fond memories of or, or not so fond memories? Or do you have any favorite gaming memories or, or experiences with the system? Well, I will, I will go first to just my biggest memory about the N64. I was, uh, you know, at IGN. We're going we're gonna to link IGN to this one. It was uh, Cass Messina playing San Francisco Rush for <laughs> the original <laughs> San Francisco Rush. For a guide, and he would just do nothing. Actually, it was probably before he was doing a guide. Like you, Doug, you probably put him onto the guide because all he was doing was yeah. trying to jump the car into like this fenced-off area on one of the tracks just to see if he could do it. But he was doing that. That's all he would do for like an entire week was just jumping that car, trying to get it to land in this this fenced-off area that was never meant to be landed into to begin with. And that kind of Guide. What's that? And it wasn't part of the guide. No, it wasn't part of the guide. Exactly. So it's a, like that. It's like, why don't you just write a guide? Make sure you know, mark all the keys and you know how to get all the keys and all the other things. But what 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 that spawned was a trip to Atari Games. Me and Casmasina and I think Dan Egger. I'm not sure uh, who the third person was, but we went down to um, uh, Milpitas uh, where Atari Games was. Ed Log was there, and we met Ed Log. We kind of had a conversation about what Matt was doing, this, you know, during work trying to do this, uh, flip the car into this one area. And I think that that spawned Atari to build out the first um, stunt track in Rush Two, which then got fleshed out into Rush Twenty Forty Nine. I remember Ed Log would so. would actually talk to Matt on the phone all the time, and Matt would be like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, you need you need." When you're in the air, you need to be able to spin the car. And Ed would be like, really? Okay. And then like a week later, he's like, hey, it works. It's great. <laughs> and Matt would be like, what? You should add wings. And Ed's like, wings? <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, like the game came out exactly like Matt wanted, which means it was unplayable as a racing game, but the stunt <laughs> stuff was awesome. Yeah. Good job, Cass Messina. <laughs> 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 I remember um, really, really enjoying... Uh, you know, everyone complained about how there weren't that many launch titles. I mean, there was a the Dream Team was a joke. There was like Mortal Kombat trilogy and Killer, Killer Instinct. Instinct, and 
Gretzky 3D and but the really good games I think were Super Mario 64 and Pilot Wing 64. And because there weren't that many other titles that came out at the time, when you got your N64, you could just focus on those two games. And they were big games. So for me, it was really like really exploring and, and getting all the stars in Mario 64 and then playing the heck out of Pilot Wings. And, you know, that was that's probably one of my favorite N64 games, those two of all times, because I actually had time even as a journalist, just play them over and over and over again. And I'd only add to that Wave Race 64 because that was probably one of my all-time favorite N64 games just yeah. because it, there was no equal ever after that. It was it was just the best darn game of its kind, and that was and I think it was the first time people had seen um, – what was it? Water uh, physics. Su- it, was a, it was water physics and lens flares. Yeah, oh, it was true. It was so awesome. The you know some of the tracks had like different water levels, so the paths were different. It was just really cool. The foundation for the for the franchise, and I remember the wait between Mario sixty four and Wave Race seemed really really long, and then of course uh, you know Goldeneye after that. But those games were so good that you would just keep on playing them, and so you know it it kind of the you you really played them to their fullest, and it kind of yeah. bridged these long gaps between them. I remember just. You know, Mario 64, like, there was nothing that was not uncovered, you know? Even, like, jumping to the top of the castle without, you know, right at the beginning of the game, trying to do wall jumps just to get up there. You'd do it for hours on end and fail. Yeah. I rem- I, I, this reminds me. Um, I remember we, I was looking back around the sites for some reason the other day, and uh, uh, everyone thought that Luigi was in that game. Do you yep. guys remember that? All these people were like, oh, Luigi's in the game. Where is he? He's hidden. And, you know, Miyamoto would be like, eh, it's very nice of you to think that Luigi's in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is or isn't. But, you know. And so we had a contest because I was like, you know, I'm sick of all these people saying Luigi's in the game. And it was the dumbest thing I'd ever done because I was like, yeah, let's have a contest. And if they can tell us how to get Luigi in the game, we'll give them an N64. So then, of course, we got the storm of people telling us how to get Luigi in the game. And then I had to go through all of those and try to see if they worked. And none of them worked because they were all BS. Because Luigi wasn't in the game. <laughs> no one had time for... to do it. <laughs> people also thought you could ride Yoshi. Remember that? Yep. I remember, like, going down to the fire level and trying to run through, like, this fire waterfall. And I was like, oh, every time I die. I just don't think, you know, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> If you burn just the right way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then um, and then I remember, this goes back to Paris' comment about um, Next Generation and kind of how he got noticed, which is that I remember Next Gen reviewed Turok, and they gave it a three out of five stars. And that's when I realized there was this, you know, I would, I would say I was a Nintendo 64 fan, but also I really liked the games, and I was like, Turok's different than all these other games, and all these great guns with these, all these weird, you know, gadgets on them. And they were big and they were badass. And then they gave it a three out of five. And I'm like, you guys, you guys didn't even play this game. You know, you just gave it a, an effing three because it's a claim. And I was like, and Pear, I think he gave it a higher score. He was, I was part of his article. And I was like, I totally agree. I, I was mad about that, but I played the heck out of Turok too. I thought those guys, those guys had become critics to the point where, they couldn't recapture the moment of, you know, what it feels like to be a gamer, to get, for the first time, to get a game like that. And I remember, you know, like, 
games like Turok are now a dime and a dozen. It's like the first time you plop Turok in and you saw how it was running super smooth, you kind of didn't see the fog and all that, but just kind of getting the big guns and that, that feel, it was really exciting at the time. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, I think that we just generally we have to watch out that we don't turn into such, you know, that we're not so far removed from what the general gamers feel and, and you know, feel when they when they start a game or play an experience for the first time. Yeah. I think that's why I gravitate towards the handhelds because, like, there's there's limitations and restrictions to, to handheld gaming, right? And it's like you, you appreciate when they're pulling something off that just you haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I, there was a lot of that with the N64 as well. Oh, <laughs> do, you guys remember, do you guys remember when I wrote that April Fool story about uh, Howard Lincoln? Sex change. Yeah, I wrote yes. I, I wrote a story about Howard Lincoln. On April 1st, I was like, ah, oh, you know, it's April 1st. I'll just write the story. And it was all about how ha- Howard Lincoln had gotten sex change and he had taken some time off and he came back and he was a woman. And, oh, my gosh. And, you know... <laughs> And, and you know what happened was I was always talking with Eileen Tanner, who was the PR rep at Golden Harris for Nintendo, and she would always send the Q&A and the letter section to Howard so he could read them every morning. Um, and apparently he read that story as well and you know thought it was funny, but the rest of the PR team at Nintendo didn't. So two things happened. One was my publisher, Jonathan Simpson Bent, called me in and said, Doug Perry, I want you to take that story down about Howard Lincoln and get rid of it and de- just destroy it. And I was like, but it's April 1st. It's it's a joke. He's like, no, take that down right now. It's, it's not okay. Nintendo's called us, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, fine, I'll just take it down. <laughs> <laughs> so I took it down. And then um, about two weeks later, he went to Japan. And, he, and everyone was like, Howard, are you okay? They all heard all the Japanese heard about the story and had read the story and thought he had gone through the serious surgery. And they were really concerned about him. They, didn't get, they weren't sure about the sex change part, but they knew he had the surgery. <laughs> Went to speak to all of Nintendo, and they were like, "Oh, is it? Oh, are you okay? Did you recover from your surgery?" And he's like, "I want you all to know. That's right. I did have a sex change. I'm a woman." And there was like this quiet sort of like the American <laughs> laugh, but everyone was like, not getting it. And he's like, I'm just kidding. I didn't have surgery. It was an April Fool's joke because they don't have April Fool's over there. So they, they didn't get it. Um, so, so, yeah, I got in a lot of trouble for that. That was fun, though. Wow. <laughs> it, yeah. And that story doesn't exist even on my hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> the way it's that in your writing portfolio. <laughs> And now everyone does April Fool's jokes. Like uh-huh. Zelda movie trailers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Halo Park. Pretty anyway, um, it's been 15 years, which obviously is a very long time, and we've we've had two Nintendo systems since then. So oh, I'm curious your guys' thoughts. How do you think the N64 compares to the NES, SNES, GameCube, Wii? Where does it well, stand, Nintendo Pantheon? If I, can, if I can start off, I think the – you know, to me, the Super NES is, was still the best console out of the whole batch. You know, I just think, thinking back, so many classics got their start on the Super NES, and it was just kind of, you know, obviously I like the NES a lot too, but it was just kind of such a refined machine. It was able to pull off 3D and kind of its limited Mode 7 glory, but so cleverly and so well that I, you know, I really kind of love the Super NES above everything. But then I, you know, when I think about just kind of like the single hits, the N64 was just incredibly strong. 
You just think of Ocarina of Time, of Super Mario 64, Blast Corps, man. That game oh, was yeah. too. You know, there were just so many great games on the N64. Now, they don't hold up quite as well as the Super NES titles because of the, you know, being the first kind of true 3D console. A lot of the games look pretty assy nowadays. But you can easily plop in Super Mario 64 again and play it. It's just so good still. Um, I, You know, to me, it, it, it was a strong console. Um, I think that ultimately the decision to not go with a CD drive really cost Nintendo the lead and really kind of set them back for a long time. But I think it's it, it was infinitely home to way better games infinitely than the than the Wii, for example. But you had to enjoy the color purple. That's right. And, and like basically the 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 N sixty four games seem to be at home with a very purple hue. And, <laughs> And uh, but, but I mean, I I think that uh, on a technical level, it was um, you know obviously it was the first system not only to have a, a analog stick at least in the in that generation. I mean, analog sticks existed back in the eighties, you know. And, but console, this kind of, yeah. yeah, but this is the first you know first uh, game system you know that you know of the three D era that you know really embraced that analog stick and kind of kicked you know uh, the PlayStation to do it and and Saturn to do it with that uh, with their night controller as well. Um, but also they, you know, they introduced the uh, the Rumble Pack, and that kind of, uh, you know, kicked off the whole everyone needs to have Rumble in their controller as well. And so uh, there were some really good ideas there on the N64. But um, I think I think it's the it was the embracing some standards that kind of pushed that to to current generations. With yeah, the, I with can't. The be- I mean, remember the first time you played the 3D games like Mario 64? It's not like polygonal 3D hadn't been around on. You know, for example, on like uh, Virtua Racing in the arcades and stuff like that. But it was just like, it was like uncharted territory. The first time you booted Mario 64 up, that sense of kind of like a first, you know, I, I don't think you can easily, it's just not duplicated again, you know? Like, well, and, and you're also, you also spent, well, you spent hours just toying around with Mario's face. Yeah. And that, that's the first thing you oh boot up, God, so you get Mario's yeah. face. So that 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 kind of that kind of kickstarted that whole like hey you're doing something completely new and different with this controller and and then 3D graphics you know that you're playing with Mario's face. Yeah. So so that's interesting you mentioned the Super NES pair because I I think I started gaming well, obviously in the arcades but Genesis was my son's favorite system so I didn't really have the Super NES until later. So if you I were to compare all the systems and see which one was I I can't say which one was the most successful because Honestly, financially, probably the Super NES or the Wii were the most financially successful. Um, but in terms of in terms of my favorite system, I would say it was the N64 because of the big hits that were on it. Like you said, it was. I mean, because they were the first party hits too. And 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 the N64 had you know it had and Super Mario 64, Pilot Wings. I liked Turok a lot. It, the Mario Kart was a, one of the better Mario Karts, but you know, Star Fox 64 for me was excellent. And then, I mean, it just kept all these 3D games keep coming. And, and Ocarina of Time was a was probably you know, it's, and a lot of people consider that one of the greatest games, if not the greatest game of all time. So that was that was a huge a huge changer, you know. And for Nintendo, it was it was a bittersweet because they started off so well. I thought. N64 saw it really well with a lot of good games, and then it slowly lost all the support over time because the PlayStation started really picking things up, and they they you know they bet wrong right they 
they bet on the old cartridge system. And that was a, so they did this, it was like this very interesting set of divergent paths. Like the one time they were creating these great 3D games that were, uh, you know, unrivaled, right? Like the only other 3D game that came out at the time of Super Mario was Tomb Raider, right? And and everyone copied Super Mario 64 and few people copied Tomb Raider. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was super influential. And then, you know, uh, Ocarina of Time came out and blew everyone away. But by that time, there was this technological shift that had already transferred, and all the major third-party companies had gone another way. They they kind of left Nintendo, and they went they went with Sony. So you know, all the big ones, Capcom and Square and um, Enix, uh, they 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 all went, and you know, and Namco, they all went with uh, Sony. So it was a a great time. And for first-party games, and it was a kind of a bad time for third-party games, and it was a big change for Nintendo because they 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 kind of were, were beat at their own game in a lot of ways. So I'd say the N64, at least the, the you know up until say like uh, uh, Zelda came out. Well, and then Majora's Mask came out too, which was which was awesome. <laughs> but yeah, the um, no, I the you know the whole cartridge decision of course was the sound the sound a sound decision for nintendo you know they loved making a certain type of game they didn't want to put users through kind of the pain of having to wait for a game to load but they also wanted to completely control the market and you know they had invested a lot in infrastructure for factories to build these uh these rom cartridges and they didn't want to give that up yet and felt that cd was just too slow and you know uh, a rival had, you know, a big stake in, in the CD business. They didn't want to support that. And, you know, ultimately, though, what that created was a business model that just wasn't sound. I remember talking to a bunch of companies back then, always going like, hey, are you going to bring this PlayStation game out? And either the answer was, no, well, we can't really fit it on a cartridge. That would be way too expensive to squeeze that into into a cartridge. Or they would say, dude, we can't afford it because you have to order a certain amount of cartridges from Nintendo for your right. first run, and if only a part of those sells, you still owe that money to Nintendo, even oh. if those sell. And so you're sitting on you're sitting on all that investment, and it would have broken the back of a lot of the the smaller companies that just couldn't afford to to gamble with that. And then if you had a success, you would have to then reorder a big batch of them, and that might it's, won't take a month or three weeks. That would take three months to four or five months. Yeah, it was an eight, it was an eight week uh, dev cycle on the, on a production cycle on, on cartridges. Wow. And that waiting, you might have to wait behind other people. So it was and, a tough business model. And all your marketing would be wasted, right? you you still have TV commercials running, but you don't have any cartridges in stores and you have to wait eight weeks for the next batch to arrive. So it was a, from a, you know, third party perspective, it was just a big disaster. But I will go on the record and say that I like the Super Nintendo more than I like the N64. With pair. Yeah. Two and one doesn't make it right, guys. <laughs> it, it totally does. But I, no, I mean, as I just kind of look at the catalog of games, though, if Zero X was awesome, Paper Mario started on the system, you know, there was Two Rock Mario Tennis, uh, ISS Soccer, remember ISS 64? That was great. Yeah. Banjo Kazooie, yeah. Excite Bike 64. But there was also, yeah, there was also the, the, the great idea of integrating um, Game Boy with N64 games. So, like, there was, you know, Mario Tennis and Mario Golf that you could bring your, your character over from the Game Boy and, and put it on the N64 version. Pokemon, same what same thing. You had the, the Coliseum, or not Coliseum, what was it called on the, uh, was it Coliseum? Yeah. Yeah, right, yep. 
So yeah, you can bring your Pokemon that you were you were you were building up on the Game Boy and and, and bring them to battle on the on the, the console. And that was you know that was the first step in that whole connectivity thing. Totally. I think one of the things that made Nintendo 64 really novel for me was that it had the integrated four controller ports. So for me, it was the multiplayer games system, and there's just so many great four-player game experiences that I had on that system that I hadn't had before with this. And yes, because I didn't get the satellite or anything like that, and it just with Mario Party and Mario Kart and GoldenEye and Smash Brothers and so many fighting games, it's just a blast for that reason. Yep, I agree yeah. with you. I mean, we had we had it, the N64 became a reason to get your friends to come over. You know, we yeah. definitely got together a bunch, and it was played a ton in the offices as well. Just you know, Smash Brothers was always on. People would just kind of walk by, pick up the, the controllers, and you would play play a, a quick match and. You know, certainly if you look uh, across the the lineup, you know, with Mario Tennis and all those titles too, it was just it was just awesome for multiplayer Mario Kart. Now, looking forward to the Wii U, and God knows what's going to come next after that. What do you would you guys say is the biggest lesson, good or bad, that the N sixty four gives to Nintendo or to the rest of the industry? Lesson. Well, one is mind your third parties, right? If you if you want the benefits of having a varied lineup, um, and a varied lineup usually means an audience that is very avid and buys a lot of games, you need to create a system that is not just easy to develop for, but actually financially sound, right? Uh, which means, unfortunately, um, you have to build something that is similar to what your competitors are doing. If you make everything super specific, and it has to be specific, you know, which the Wii U doesn't. You have you can make a completely standard game and not have that kind of asymmetrical gaming experience with with the screen. Um, but it allows a lot of uh, com- companies to just add one more SKU and, and release a, a a version for your your platform as well. Because in the end, you know, the Wii uh, it just kind of dies now because there, you know, nobody is making games for it, and it was just too difficult, you know, as companies were making PlayStation and Xbox games um, to create a Wii SKU meant you had to hire another developer because the guys who were working on the Xbox 360 or PS3 games never really wanted to do that other SKU because it's, you know, it was kind of boring to work on the Wii. You're not excited about creating graphics and audio on on the Wii. And um, in the end, people just didn't want to do it anymore. I would say that's a tough question to answer simply because we've already had two consoles between the N64 and the the Wii. So what in the, in the N64 did right, it's kind of really hard to apply this far in, you know. Uh, but Paris right, it's absolutely um, uh, important for um, them to embrace the third parties. You know, they they you know figure a way to make this the the console to to bring not just Nintendo. Um, but you know other other developers to kind of come to this system. I mean, granted, most people buy a Nintendo console for Nintendo system, or I'm sorry, Nintendo consoles for Nintendo games. But uh, you know there are other companies out there wanting to make money on video games, and you know if you kind of alienate uh, those those companies, you're they're just going to move over to the 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 Sony and the the Xbox camp because you know they're very similar. And what you you make one game on one, you make it up for the other. Yeah, and they, I mean this. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with creating a system that is that kind of forces people to specialize a bit. You know, it's all right if if the machines are not all exactly the same. But there is definitely a risk when your competitors offer a platform that lets them do basically everything that you do as well. 
but on your console you can only reach a certain market or you can only uh, you know pull off a certain type of gameplay then that really limits it and i think that was one of the lessons of the wii was that man what a great idea right the motion controls everybody copied it it was it was a smart freaking console and it became the hottest thing out there that people wanted but after you got over that initial you know oh i get it now motion control games are fun and you play tennis you quickly realize that well maybe it's not that versatile you know maybe you know you are going to go back to kind of like the traditional uh, control styles on the other platforms and that's the the danger of specializing i would say the number one lesson that nintendo learned was uh going forward that never to make another cartridge basis <laughs> and then the 64dd won't save your ass so those are the two major lessons you know going into the wii u you know please don't make it a cartridge system don't think that the 64dd will save your ass. well they still I haven't have, learned that lesson because if the 3ds has got cartridges you know they still haven't embraced digital downloads yet yeah <laughs> oh yeah. yeah oh the internet is not your is not the enemy I think that's <laughs> another good lesson. Uh, it's okay to have online games and to make them, you know, available for you and your system. Because I don't think I've ever really played any online games that were, were you know, any fun or worth their salt on on any Nintendo system. You know what's <laughs> confounding? Because I mean, the little known fact is that Nintendo was one of the early proponents, not just yeah. of downloadable games, but of network gaming too. Yeah. You know. 6040D had the RantNet service, which was basically like kind of like a mini gamer internet too. You could like get special applications, you could share stuff, you could upload things. Before that, there was Satellaview on the on the Super NES, the DS, you know, broadcast satellite system where you could actually download games in episodic format. Nintendo did that, and then somehow they forgot that they had all that experience and just kind of gave up on that. Yeah, I remember there were that like the super. I think it was a super. The NES or the Super NES that they made uh, that you could, you know, you could use it online in Japan. There was yep, like, this yep. little chip in there that you could use. Um, I think you know the, the thing that changed their mind forever was that uh, I think it was GoldenEye or maybe it was Perfect Dark was when they had this custom creation um, ability where you could take your face and map it onto the characters. And the, during the testing phase, um, they learned that people were taking genitals and mapping them onto characters' faces. <laughs> and when they saw that, they're like, "Hmm, we'll never, we'll never do this ever." <laughs> I I think there was there's another lesson from the N64 days, and that's to trust in new game ideas and and follow them through. Because I remember that Nintendo had no clue what they had with GoldenEye. They really did not know. <laughs> And the sure. same thing later on. I remember we played Super Smash Brothers in Japan, and our eyes were like spinning. We're like, "This is awesome!" We're talking to the Nintendo of America guys, and they're like, "Ah, we don't like the idea of Nintendo characters beating up on each other." We're like, "What? Yeah, yeah. Crazy! <laughs> it's brilliant! We all want to kill Pikachu!" You know? They're like, "Yeah, I'm sure about that. It might not come out here." We're like, "You guys, you gotta be crazy! No, that's gotta come out here." Oh man. So I I think though that you know that is a lesson learned too, just to kind of not underestimate game games like Goldeneye and and Smash Brothers and you know now Smash Brothers is a true mega franchise and it I think it kind of taught Nintendo that sometimes you got to relax a little bit you know and 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 not be too worried about about taking your characters outside their own game concept. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like Nintendo is still very innovative. They, they, the company still, has, I think, is probably one of the, been the most innovative hardware manufacturers and software manufacturers in the world because uh, it continues to take chances and do things differently. I mean, they, they always surprise people. They always do something different. Even if it doesn't succeed, there are oftentimes a lot of good ideas in, in their efforts. You know, I, I hope to see more of that, and I expect to see that as well. Yeah, I think sometimes, though, that comes at the price of doing, you know, I, I think they're so focused on trying to innovate and never kind of lose sight that they're making a toy for people. You know, they're all about fun and creating a fun toy for people. But sometimes they they try so damn to be different that they lose sight of what actually works. And, you know, one example is the freaking We Speak thing, you know, for Animal Crossing, if you remember that. Like, no, it was not a good idea to have that pod in your freaking room because everybody is using headsets and it works just fine. And, you know, there there are a couple of examples like that where I just kind of wish I just want to shake the Nintendo guys by the shoulders and say, <laughs> can you please play, you know, can you play one of these games and check it out because they've, sold the, they've solved the problem for you if you only gave it a chance and checked it out. Well, Noah, any last questions? I am good. You are good. <laughs> and uh, um, on a review scale of nine out of one out of ten, uh, Noah's voice, I'd say, is like a nine. It was at eight point nine. <laughs> well, but well, you gotta you gotta do it in the, the the scale that n64.com had, which was the flat one through ten. Oh, there was wait, no point. Actually, I'm gonna give it a seven point nine. Yeah, I was just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we didn't start doing the uh, the decimal system until we actually became IGN.com. Like we were IGN 64, you know, Saturn World, Ultra Game Players. But it's when we tried to put them all together, that's when we became IGN and stole that hundred point scale from Ultra Game Players. That's right, Doug. You guys on N64.com in the very beginning, you had a scale that was like one hat out of ten or something. It had little Mario hats. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, Mario's hat! What a litigious little hat that was. Oh yeah. You'll talk you guys to know about you guys know about the story of why we went from N64.com to IGN64.com? Because you were sued. No, they didn't yeah. sue. They, we were sued. They just said, is ours. <laughs> we were served papers. We 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 bought you know we bought the URL. Nintendo was like, we have NintendoPower.com. We don't need that. We we, and, we basically scored a big great URL. Is what we did. Yeah, and and that was because Nintendo is very proper, right? Like whenever Nintendo writes Nintendo GameCube, they never call it a GameCube. They never call it a game lowercase anything cube. It's always Nintendo together with the word GameCube in all caps, right? And they were, <laughs> they were exactly like that. They would never say N64. Even in interviews, when you interviewed Nintendo execs, they would always say Nintendo 64. And so we all called it the N64, and people everywhere called it the N64. And for the longest time, Nintendo didn't really care that we had the URL because that was not the name of the system. And then, you know, eventually they said, hey. <laughs> well, what happened is... That our site was more popular than Nintendo Powers was, and we would say things, and then the, these kids who you know were getting online were like, "Hey, well, N64 said this," and the guys in Nintendo Power were like, "Damn those guys!" I hate yeah. them. <laughs> and I remember going up to visit them to see their games and stuff, and I had not been told by our publisher that um, they had served us papers to, to wow. you know change the name. 
So I went up there to visit them, and I'm like, hey, Beth Llewellyn, it's really good to see you and all this stuff. And then I got in this room, and they're like, okay, um, have you seen the papers? And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, um, well, you know, we've talked about all this game stuff, but now let's talk about this. And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> the lawyers sent some papers? I have, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I really didn't. And I was, I was totally nervous because I'm like, uh, yeah, those guys are really mad. I went back to talk to Jonathan. He's like, oh, yeah. Well. And then we figured it out and we turned it to IGN64.com. And by that time, it was, you know, too late for Nintendo. They were very gracious, actually. The um, We had kind of like a an, a uh, bridge time where for one year, if you went to N64.com, it would say, you know, to see Nintendo's official site, go here for, you know, Imagine Media oh, yeah. 64, go here. Like, right. they didn't have to do that. They were pretty fair about it. In that same piece, they also made us take the hat off off our site. We It was N64.com, and there was a hat, like Mario's hat was used. And uh, they made us take it off because uh, it was it was Mario's hat. It was not our hat, and we couldn't use it because it belonged to Nintendo. And I swear to God, that was part of, of the paperwork. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they haven't really changed. They also don't like it when you put me's on your website graphics. <laughs> <laughs> hey, where are they on IGN? I don't see them. How weird. I remember they were a prominent part of the layout for a while. That is so strange. Now that you say it, I notice they're gone. <laughs> when I worked at GameStop, I was friends with the Nintendo rep who would come in, and she told me a story about how a fellow rep went to a Walmart and bought a Mountain Dew or a Pepsi, and that rep was fired because you do not go shopping. You do not buy anything at one of the vendors. You are representing Nintendo. You do not do anything at all. And she's like, yeah, so never will I, ever, I won't even get gas, basically, around the store that I'm, that I'm wow. repping at. That's pretty strict. Really? Yeah. So uh, apparently you didn't drink the, the Mountain Dew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was the Master Chief Mountain Dew. <laughs> you didn't get... Did you do that? No, sir. I was just asking, did, did you get fired for that? Or did, uh, did no. you break any other rules that we should know about? <laughs> That's a different podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thank you very much for joining us this evening to talk about your memories from years back at IGN and your memories of Nintendo 64. It's been really a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, guys. Listeners, we hope you like the show. If you have any comments or feedback you want to send in, send it in to airship at nintendoja.com. We hope you like the episode, too. Time for some quick credits. The music used in this podcast comes from Overclocked Remix, a not-for-profit website dedicated to the video game music remixing community. You can check the site out at www.ocremix.org. The music used in this episode is the remix Why So Serious, created by remixers Benjamin Briggs, Insert Rupee, and Halk. The original tracks are Main BGM No. 1, Main BGM No. 2, and Overworld BGM from Nintendo's Game Boy Classic, Super Mario Land. The original composer was Hirokazu Tanaka. If you like this remix, you can download more at www.ocremix.org and find many of the original game soundtracks for purchase at Amazon.com or iTunes. Additionally, Super Mario Land is available for purchase on 3DS's Virtual Console. Once again, thanks for listening to Airship Travelogs, a Nintendo Dojo podcast. Be sure to check out the site's original podcast, Dojo Show Go.